First of all, a brief overview of Luke's Gospel, and then we're going to spend most of our time, as you'll see on the outline, thinking about uh, three, uh, three things. Fulfillment, what is the Gospel in Luke, and then uh, certainty. If we have time, other things will uh, do that. If we don't, we won't worry too much, but it'd be nice uh, before we finish the evening, given the fact that we are in our growth groups, to pray together as well. I want to leave good time for that. So Luke 1. 1 to 4, 13 is very much uh, an introduction to uh, Jesus' ministry. Uh, chapter 4, 14 to 9, 50, we see his uh, ministry in uh, Galilee. And Luke is very well structured, and so I've put the kind of the different sections there. And um, the climax of the first half of Luke's Gospel, if you turn to chapter 9, the climax really is the point at which the disciples rightly recognise who Jesus is. So chapter 9, verse 20, then the Lord Jesus said to them, to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. So his identity, he is indeed the Christ of God. And then his mission uh, is what immediately follows, verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day be raised. So that is the kind of climax of the first half of Luke's Gospel, a grasp of Jesus' identity, and then Jesus explaining precisely the kind of uh, Messiah, the kind of uh, Christ (coughs) that he is in terms of of his uh, mission. The second half of Luke's Gospel, you'll see, splits into two sections, 951 to 1944, Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, and then his time in Jerusalem, his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, and resurrection. But remember, too, that Luke also wrote Acts. Acts begins in the first book, Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. In other words, Luke is very much laying the foundations for Acts. So when we think, what is Luke doing? We also need to think in terms of where Acts is going to be going. And we'll say more about that in just a moment. When was Luke written? Uh, Probably in the early 60s AD. um, Luke Acts mentions, it doesn't mention anything, for example, about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 or the death of the Apostle Paul. Now let's turn to the very beginning of Luke's Gospel, uh, which in a sense uh, shows us Luke's two big ideas. Would someone be happy to read for us Luke 1 verses 1 to 4? Marcus, thanks very much. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Great, okay. Um, you can see there, there are just his two themes which I want to pick out. The first is chapter 1, verse 1. That word accomplished is uh, really the word fulfillment, that those things that have been fulfilled among us. 
and we'll see in a moment the idea of fulfillment is a big theme in in Luke. And then uh, the second big idea in verses 1 to 4 is his purpose in writing verse 4, that you may have a certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So we're going to look at uh, fulfillment, we're then going to look at certainty, and then in the middle, and hopefully it will make sense as to why we're uh, looking at it in, in between those two things, we're going to ask the question, what is the gospel in Luke? Now, let's, let's start then with fulfilment. And immediately in the first four chapters of Luke, we get a, a sense that um, everything um, that has been written in the Old Testament is now being fulfilled. There's so much Old Testament uh, being quoted. So Luke begins, chapter 1, verse 5, onwards with a childless couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And immediately, of course, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, our our ears kind of uh, prick up. We think of other Old Testament childless couples, Abraham and Sarah, Elkanah and Hannah, who gave birth to Samuel, Manoah, and his wife, who gave birth to uh, Samson. And our Old Testament ears prick up, and we're full of expectation. What is God about to do? Who will this child be? So, for example, we see... Uh, fulfillment very clearly in the words of the angel Gabriel to Mary, verses 31 to 33 of chapter 1. Verse 31, and behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is the son. The son of Psalm 2. The one who who rules over all things. The one who is the judge of all people. And he's the descendant of King David. Who God said would rule on David's throne forever. Indeed, I've put a whole list of other Old Testament fulfilment quotations there on the outline, which you can look up uh, later, all of them, uh, just in chapters uh, 1 and 2. This great sense of anticipation and expectation as God is now fulfilling his Old Testament uh, promises. Turn to the end of Luke, because Luke also finishes on this same note of fulfilment. And could someone read for us Luke 24, verses 44 to 47? Luke 24, 44 to 47. Someone else be happy to read for us. Thanks, um, thanks, Michael. Yep. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Great, thanks so much indeed. Uh, notice verses 44 to 45 introduce the theme of fulfilment. Everything written about me must now be fulfilled, everything written in the Old Testament. And therefore, of course, the key to understanding Jesus, uh, who he is, why he's come, lies in understanding uh, the Old Testament. Notice then verse 46 is in essence a summary of Luke's gospel. It's a summary of what has been fulfilled. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. 
And then verse 47, we're given a summary of what has still to be fulfilled. Um, In other words, what is going to happen in Acts. Verse 47, repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. Indeed, Acts begins by picking up on that. I'll put Acts chapter 1 verse 8 on the outline, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then Acts finishes with the gospel having been rejected by the Jews on the whole, and the Apostle Paul declaring, Acts 28, 28, Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. In other words, what is Luke's Gospel doing? Luke's Gospel is laying the foundations for, in Acts, for the Gospel to go global. So from in Acts, the Gospel to go out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of of the earth. That's why I said at the beginning it's really helpful not just to study Luke in isolation, but to think what is uh, what are the foundations Luke is, Luke is laying in his gospel. It's to show that in Acts the, the gospel is going to go global. Which uh, it seems to me it means there are two things to look out for as we study Luke's gospel. Firstly, uh, why it is that Jesus was rejected by the Jewish religious establishments. And secondly, look out for the extraordinary number of outsiders who are welcomed by the Lord Jesus. So uh, Luke loves loves to show us the outsider being saved, the outsider following Jesus, whether it's the tax collector or the children or the prostitutes, the leper or the religious outsider, paving the way for the gospel going to the nations. Now, before we go on to think about uh, certainty, let's ask this question. What is the gospel in Luke? Now, you may be thinking, hang on a moment, that's a rather odd question. You know, as if Luke's gospel is going to be any different from uh, any other gospel that we see, um, or from, from the gospel that we see in the rest of the New Testament. But I want to spend some time on it. Because you sometimes hear people saying that Luke has a particular emphasis on the poor, um, that he has a bias to the marginalised and uh, dispossessed and oppressed, uh, led, as we were reminded in uh, Summer Focus a few uh, weeks ago, by the liberation theology movement in South America in the 1970s, uh, which argued that the mission of the church is to help the poor and the economically oppressed One widely used definition of mission amongst UK churches includes mission as transforming social structures, transforming society so that unjust structures are reformed and overturned and a desire to safeguard the integrity of creation. And the justification for all of that is Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 19. So I want to spend some time together in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 19. Perhaps uh, someone else would be happy to read those verses uh, for us. Perhaps, yeah, yeah, Luke, Luke 4, 16 to 19. Someone would be happy to do that. Emily? Great, thank you. 
and he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Excellent, thank you. Um, I keen that we do some group work this evening, rather than just listening to me. So why don't we just spend a few minutes in our groups, just looking at uh, Luke 4, 16 to 19, and just thinking about those questions. Who are the poor and the captives? How does this passage help us to understand what the gospel is? Don't um, feel, you may feel slightly kind of uh, put on the spot with this. Don't feel that you have to come up with a perfect answer. Uh, just uh, share thoughts as you are able to around the tables. I hope that was a helpful exercise, at least in terms of beginning to think about the, the issue. <coughs> I think there are two, two ways we could approach this. The first is simply to ask the question, what is the gospel in Luke up to this point? Because it'd be rather strange, wouldn't it? Or indeed at any other point in Luke. Because it'd be rather strange if um, these verses in some way contradicted either what Luke has already said or what he is going to go on to say. So, let's ask the question, what is the salvation that Jesus Christ has come to bring? I'll turn back to chapter 1, and could someone read for us chapter 1, verses 76 to 79. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall give us from on high, to give, shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness, Thanks so much indeed. So, what is this salvation that John the Baptist is going to herald and the Lord Jesus <coughs> is going to bring? Well, verse 77 it is salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, which verse 79 uh, results in peace, peace with God. That, I take it, is why the shepherds, when they announce the birth of uh, the Saviour, what is it that is proclaimed to the shepherds by the angel, uh, chapter 2, verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. And they then proclaim, verse 14, this same message of peace. It's why in chapter 2, verses 29 to 31, Simeon is now ready to die, to die in peace, because he has seen the salvation God promised in the Old Testament. The salvation notice for all people, verse 32, for both Jew and Gentile. It's this same salvation, chapter 3, verse 3, that John the Baptist preaches and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And it is that same uh, gospel, if you like, that is then being announced by the Lord Jesus in chapter 4, verses 16 to 19. And I think we see that, by, I said there are two ways we can answer this question. One is to ask the question, what is 
uh, what is the gospel in Luke up to this point and indeed beyond this point. The second way to answer the question, this is obviously, as I think you all spotted, is a quote from Isaiah chapter uh, 61. So it's by asking the question, well, who are the poor in Isaiah chapter 61? Who are uh, the captives and uh, the oppressed and so on? Well, in Isaiah 61, the poor, those in captivity, those who are oppressed, are those who are under the judgment of God in exile. Indeed, uh, that is so often the case in uh, the Old Testament. So in the Psalms, for example, the poor are a variety of people, but they include King David, as he says in Psalm 40, verse 17, I put it there on the outline, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay Oh my God, King David, obviously materially very rich, and yet he recognises his sin and spiritual poverty before God. I put a couple of uh, very helpful quotes on the outline. The first is uh, Kenneth Bailey in his uh, well-known book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. 600 years of use before and after Jesus confirmed the poor as meaning primarily those who tremble at the word of God. Or David Seckham, who used to be the principal of George Whitfield College in uh, Cape Town Theological College, did his PhD on this issue. And he concludes, there is nothing socio-economic or socio-religious about Luke's use of poor terminology in the pages we have considered. To seek to ground an ethic of poverty upon these texts would be to misunderstand and misuse them. In other words, who is God's favour proclaimed to? Well, the spiritually captive, the spiritually blind, the spiritually oppressed, those who are under the judgment of God. This is not the social gospel. It's not an environmental uh, gospel. And very strikingly, the very next thing that happens is that Luke uh, gives us an example of uh, two people the very kinds of people Jesus has come for. So twenty-four. Sorry, Luke um, 4, um, 25 to 27. As he says, But I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Now what do those two have in common? Clearly they are not both physically poor and oppressed. I take it the widow was. I take it Naaman was not. He was a powerful soldier, general. Now what they have in common is they are both uh, Gentiles, they are non-Jews. You see, it's as if Luke is setting, as soon as we have Jesus' manifesto, what is the very next thing Luke does? He is setting the direction of travel for the rest of Luke's gospel and interacts as the gospel then goes to the nations. So in summary, why has Jesus come? (coughs) Chapter 5, verse 32 in the words of Jesus himself, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What is the gospel that is to be proclaimed 
to the nations, to the world. Well, turn again to Luke 24. This is the gospel that the Lord Jesus wants to be taken to the nations. Luke 24, verse 46. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. It's exactly what we've seen throughout throughout Luke's gospel, right from the very beginning, chapter 1, verses 77 to 79, repentance and forgiveness of sins lies at the heart of the gospel. Luke doesn't have a different gospel to any other part of the New Testament. He has come for all, the Lord Jesus comes for all who are under the judgment of God. Let's move on and think about uh, certainty. You'll remember back in chapter 1, verse 4, this is the purpose for which Luke is writing, to give us certainty about the Lord Jesus. And I think we are now in a better position to see the kind of certainty that Luke wants us to have. I think it's worth spending a little bit of time on this, which is what I'm going to do for the next few minutes or so, because it means that, the, in a sense, the primary application of any study in Luke's Gospel is going to be certainty and confidence. But obviously, um, if your growth group leader simply says to you at the end of each study, how does this passage give, give us certainty and confidence? That's going to be slightly dull, isn't it? So I want us just to think a little bit about the kind of different areas of certainty so that our application of this idea of certainty and confidence is broad. Um, so I'm suggesting three areas on the uh, outline where uh, Luke is wanting to give us certainty. Firstly certainty in terms of the contents of the gospel. In other words, to help us to define the gospel. It's what we've just seen. Luke defines the gospel for us. Who Jesus is, he is Lord and Saviour. Why he's come, he's come to bring the forgiveness of sins, which leads to peace with God. And there are some references you can chase there on the outline. Um, Secondly, to uh, give us confidence as to the credibility of the gospel or as we might say to enable us to defend the gospel and to do so uh, publicly Um, I think many of us are well it's interesting I was reading a a survey uh, recently um, which was uh, undertaken in a number of churches and people being asked the question what's the biggest thing that holds you back from talking to uh, friends, neighbours and colleagues about the Lord Jesus, or perhaps uh, that holds you back from having a, a Christian conversation with someone. And I don't know what you think the the biggest thing would be, just kind of off the top of your head, or what you feel the biggest thing is for you. But the biggest thing was a lack of confidence, uh, you know, in what to say. Or what if someone asks a question, I don't know the answer to the question, or someone puts me on the spot. So Luke is going to be really helpful for us in giving us confidence uh, in terms of seeing the gospel is credible so that we can defend the gospel. Um, Credible in terms of historical certainty. So go back to Luke chapter 1. Luke sets out his stall very early on. Chapter 1 verse 2. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Luke lays out his stall. Uh, These are eyewitness um, accounts he uh, he is putting together, and in good order, an orderly 
account. I've come straight from the city, as you can tell by uh, what I'm wearing. If I'd, um, if I'd gone home, I was wanting to uh, bring with me a scrapbook, which I... Um, I don't know why I got it really. I think it's one of those things that um, slipped through the net when I was sorting things out just before uh, getting married. Um, anyway, it's a scrapbook of a, a family holiday which we had when I was when I was twelve, and all the kind of you know, just the kind of completely random bits and pieces that a twelve-year-old uh, collects and, and stick in the scrapbook. And and it is pretty random. You know, you ask the question: Is there much order and logic to this? And no doubt there was in the in my mind as a twelve-year-old, but it's hard to see it now. And I think often when we read the Gospels, it is easy to have the kind of twelve-year-old scrapbook view of the Gospels. That you know, you imagine Luke sitting down at his, his desk, kind of um, you know, he, he's 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 on the next bit of his scroll or whatever, uh, kind of scratching his head. Now, what should I write about today? Oh yes, there was that thing. I'll, I'll write that parable down. The Lord Jesus told. And oh yes, then there was that miracle. I'll write that down. You know, as if it's all kind of very higgledy-piggledy. Whereas all the gospel writers uh, have a have an order, a shape to what they write, and Luke is very explicit about that. So historical certainty based on my witness accounts and as you read through uh, Luke's Gospel you cannot help but see the precision with which he writes. So chapter 2 verse 1 for example, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and so on. His uh, historical particularity uh, secondly, in terms of credibility of the gospel, he gives us uh, writing to give us theological certainty, not just historical certainty, but, but theological certainty. Back to chapter 1, verse 1, this idea of uh, Luke writing to show what's been accomplished, uh, fulfilled. In other words, the point he's making is, look, what I'm writing here, it's not some newfangled religion, you know, that's just kind of been made up on the hoof. This is all about the fulfilment of God's uh, promises. You can be certain and confident. Thirdly, um, socio-political certainty. And um, one of the things that Luke seems to emphasize again and again is how the gospel, how the Lord Jesus is rejected by the political and religious establishment. Turn back to chapter 1, verse 3. We don't know who Theophilus is that he's writing to. I'm writing an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Was he a new believer? Possibly. We don't know. But why is it that Luke uh, seems to highlight the unbelief of the establishment so much? Well, presumably it's because Theophilus and no doubt others were were saying to themselves, hang on a moment, why did the Jewish political and religious establishments those who you thought would understand their Old Testaments those who you thought if Jesus really was the Messiah would welcome him with open arms why is it that time and again they reject him perhaps they were right especially given the ongoing opposition to the gospel which we see in Acts and let me read out this quote from Daryl Bock in his commentary on Luke. Any Gentile feeling out of place in the originally Jewish movement could benefit from the reassurance Luke offers. Any Jew or Jewish Christian troubled by the lack of Jewish response to the gospel or by the Gentile openness to the gospel could see that God directed the affair 
and that he gave the nation multiple invitations to join in God's renewed work. Christianity conflicted with Judaism not because the new movement consciously tried to isolate itself from the nation, but because it was forced out. So, you know, you imagine your uh, first century uh, perhaps Jewish new Christian or perhaps Gentile new Christian very much uh, seeing themselves on the edge of society as a Christian. Well, Luke is going to give them confidence and certainty, just, of course, as increasingly uh, Christians today in this country feel on the edge. Uh, Why is it that so often uh, that is the case? So, certainty in terms of content of the gospel, certainty in terms of credibility of the gospel, to enable us and give us confidence to defend the gospel. Uh, Thirdly, certainty regarding the communication of the gospel such that we are equipped to declare it. I won't read it again, but it's where the gospel finishes as the Lord Jesus commissions his church to take the gospel to the nations. And uh, we'll see... Uh, both that being anticipated in the second half of Luke's Gospel, and we'll also see what kind of responses there are in the second half of Luke's Gospel as uh, the Gospel is taken to uh, the nations. Now what I've done, um, I hope you find this uh, helpful, is to uh, begin, or certainly show for the first three studies, the kind of uh, application table which I think could be really helpful in terms of helping us to apply Luke's Gospel in a greater Uh, depth and breadth so you'll see I just put the first three studies down the left hand side of the table and I put our three areas of certainty along the top Um, not suggesting uh, at all that um, you'll be able to fill in necessarily each box for each study uh, but nonetheless I hope it gets us thinking actually what kind of certainty does this particular study really help us with and hopefully that will be a useful uh, exercise in pushing us to really uh, grasp the applications for ourselves as we go through week by week. If you find it helpful, then you can uh, draw up your own table with all the studies or badger someone else in the group to do it and then send it round. Right, um, how are we doing? Okay, time for one or two other things. Um, just one or two sort of general things on studying the second half of Luke. Uh, firstly, the structure. Uh, turn, if you will, to Luke chapter 9, verse 51. So remember how Luke says he's written an orderly account and the structure of the second half of the gospel is very much focused on Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. So let me just uh, show us that with these verses that I put there on the outline. Chapter 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That is then repeated in chapter 10, verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, no reference to Jerusalem, but that cannot be a coincidence given the number of other times uh, uh, it is clearly on the way to Jerusalem. Chapter 13, verse 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Chapter 17, verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And 19.28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Um, So Luke deliberately seems to have these sections. And um, one of the things we're going to do in our studies when we get to the end of each section is to try and review the section as a whole 
and think what are the what are the big things Luke's been wanting to show us from the section as a whole. So I'm not going to tell us now what each section is about, but it would be really uh, helpful as we uh, go through week by week to bear these sections in mind and to be thinking what is the whole section uh, seeking to teach us. So do think about that. Let me say something about uh, Luke's agenda. I mean, this isn't uh, particular to Luke's gospel, but just any of the gospels, I guess. But uh, Luke includes a lot of uh, material which Matthew and Mark also include. Now, I think one of the dangers is that we can assume that Luke has the same purpose for everything as the other gospel writers. So, but actually, that's that's not always the case. So, for example, you know, if um, I don't know if if a number of us all went to watch a, a football match or a tennis match or something else or so, something like that, and we had to write a an article on the match afterwards. I guess there'll be things, won't we, that we would have seen, which we would, well, there are some things which some of us would have seen, which not everyone would see. So I, I take it we'd have all kind of said the same two people were playing, if it was tennis, and the, you know, the, what the, what the um, you know, who won and what the score was, all that, that kind of stuff. But actually there are different things we'd have picked out. Um, and it's exactly the same with the uh, gospel writers. So I think one danger of studying uh, Luke's Gospel or any of, any of the other Gospels is think, oh yeah, well, I know we're in Luke's Gospel, but I heard that sermon, you know, whenever it was, on, on this, the parallel passage in Mark's Gospel. And we make the assumption that Luke is wanting to make exactly the same point as Mark. Now, it may be useful to compare uh, how, you know, where Mark puts the feeding of the 5,000 or whatever, compared with where uh, Luke does, just to uh, see you know, how they are using it to make slightly different points, that may be helpful. But uh, don't just kind of import the way in which one gospel writer is using material and assume the other one is using it the same way. Let's think about uh, purpose. So do you remember how we said that uh, Luke is writing an ordered account? I think it means that as we're... Uh, preparing each week and it's such a help by the way to prepare each week I know your growth group leaders will be encouraging you to prepare each week I'm told by growth group leaders you can generally tell who has prepared each week it is such a help to have prayerfully uh, read the passage through uh, beforehand and um, I think a really good question to be asking of any passage or any bit of a passage is why is this here in other words, here is Luke sitting down to write his ordered account. Why is he writing this particular thing? Both in terms of helping us to understand what the passage means and also in terms of helping us to apply the passage correctly. Now, sometimes Luke will tell us. So turn to Luke chapter 18. So Luke chapter 18, uh, beginning of verse 1. The ESV helpfully tells us this is the parable of the persistent widow. Not, of course, that those headings are in the Bible originally, and uh, sometimes they can be very unhelpful. But uh, you can't really go wrong, can you, calling this little section the parable of the persistent widow. And verse 1, Luke tells us why the Lord Jesus told this parable. He told them a parable to the fact that they might always pray and not lose heart. See, so he gives us a noddy's guide, if you like, to this uh, parable. Um, You get exactly the same thing in verse 9. Here's the Pharisee and the, the tax collector. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. 
So again, we're told yeah, that you can't really go wrong. He, he, he tells us why those two parables are there. So sometimes we're told uh, straight off. Other times, it is more, rather than being explicit, it is implicit. Um, in other words, we have to try and work it out by the way in which Luke groups stuff together. Okay, so one of the things I didn't tell you about my um, my holiday uh, scrap album as a twelve-year-old is that um, I had done a previous one. I think the the, the previous year, not that that one uh, did survive um, September nineteen ninety-seven, but it, in in that in that one, I kind of wrote a sort of commentary. You know, so sort of day one. You know, we did this. We, and it, there was a kind of explanation to what everything was. In the one the following year, I don't quite know what happened, but anyway, I guess the school holidays came to an end, or I had better things to do with my time and to finish my um, holiday scrapbook. Anyway, if you look at it now, you basically have to try and work out, you know, what we did on each day by kind of what is put next to next to each other. And uh, sometimes, you know, Luke and the other gospel writers do exactly the same thing. So you don't get the explicit this is what this parable is designed to tell you. You have to work it out from the way in which Luke puts different things together. So um, just the last bit of our time together this evening, back in our uh, groups round tables, and uh, have a look in chapter 18, verses, um, well, the, re- the rest of chapter 18, really, up to verse uh, 43, and uh, just skim uh, through it, and pick out what you can, and see if you can work out what do the different elements have in common. How are they different? What is it that Luke seems to be showing overall? And again, we're not going to come up with uh, a complete answer, or certainly not the perfect answer, uh, but just uh, pick up the things which you can uh, pick out uh, together. Um, who, who just wants want to chip in? What were some of the... Um, Things which these sort of different things had in common, or the differences. Any suggestions as to what Luke seems to be showing? It, yeah, it's usually not, not what they expect. It's something different. Yeah. So the, the, the unexpected. Okay. Yeah, the unexpected. Yeah. Yeah. We were thinking about. Um, we were yeah. thinking about who uh, might have a relationship with God. It wasn't who. You would have expected. So it wasn't the Pharisee, it wasn't the rich man who had who did good works and obeyed the commandments. Yep. So about who 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 is in who is in Jesus' kingdom and who isn't in Jesus' kingdom. So the unexpected thing that Chris was saying: it's not the Pharisee, it's the it's you know it's the blind beggar and so on. Yep. Any element of John? understanding and sight. So, as we go through, we see lots of not understanding, and then eventually someone gets it. Right, yes. So spiritual blindness, and then at the end you have um, the blind man being healed. Yeah. The yeah. need to humble yourself. The need to humble yourself, right, yeah. So it's, all, so it's funny, isn't it? So you have... Uh, you, 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 know, you have this thing <clears throat> when you have the Pharisee and the tax collector, you then have uh, the children coming to Jesus, you have the rich ruler, Jesus in the middle of it all speaking about his death... And then you have the healing of the blind beggar, and actually, when you begin, I think you know we've 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 seen it, haven't we? When you begin to see what's what's in common, what's different, there seems to be a, a theme running through of who who does get into God's kingdom and who isn't in God's kingdom. Um, and, and clearly, Luke 
puts the foretelling of Jesus' death bang in the middle because that is the grounds on which anyone uh, gets into God's kingdom just like the little children by simply coming to Jesus or like the blind beggar uh, crying out uh, have mercy on me uh, unlike uh, the rich ruler or the Pharisee who think they can earn their way into God's kingdom Um, I was going to do a similar thing on parables uh, but uh, I don't think I'll do that now just because of time but just as the explicit explanation again and also the the implicit and uh, I don't think I'll say anything about the Pharisees and the religious establishment but just notice as I said earlier Luke has a lot to say about them and it's worth uh, thinking as we go through why is it that he has so much to say about them Um, anyone wants to ask a question before we get into our groups to pray do you think Christians in South Africa were right to oppose apartheid? Uh, do I think Christians in South Africa were right to oppose apartheid? I do, but I don't think they'd have been right to oppose it if they described that as part of their gospel proclamation. So in other words, you know, Luke, Luke has the rest of the Old Testament, is very clear on what the gospel is. I take it they'd have opposed apartheid on the grounds of uh, seeking to love their neighbour, um, but I take it that they'd have sought to proclaim this same gospel uh, throughout. Just um, mechanics, the, in your categories of def- uh, certainty, defining, defending, declaring, how does certainty declaring differ from either certainty and defining or certainty and defending? What's the different element? Um, yeah, thank you. So back to the uh, back to the table. I suppose in defining is simply helping us to, to understand the, the gospel for ourselves. Uh, defending is, um, as I speci- you know, as I as I outlined those three particular areas. So you know, the person who I was talking to someone at lunch uh, last Tuesday, you know, for whom he had real issues of historical uh, certainty, or there may be theolog- issues of theological certainty, and so on. Um, uh, declaring it's really helping us to see. Um, giving us the confidence to, to, then, to, then, to then speak the gospel and see what happens as the gospel is then proclaimed. So, you know, you could obviously be doing all three things in one conversation in terms of your thinking to yourself, what is the gospel I'm seeking to uh, explain to this person and, 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 and so on. But I, I thought it was just helpful in terms of, you know, rather than asking the kind of just the question, um, how does this passage give us confidence? I thought was probably quite helpful in terms of um, just splitting that down into different areas, uh, so we can see a sort of breadth. Seeing uncertainty, the gospel has power. We'll we'll see that when we, in terms of declaring the gospel, mm-hmm. we'll see both um, that it is the gospel that is to be taken to all nations. So, who is the gospel for? We'll see. Who is it who is to take the gospel to all nations? Uh, we'll see how does the gospel go to all nations, and we'll see the response when then the gospel goes out as well. No. Okay. Um, 